Amen. Well, we're going to uh, begin our study as we have in the past couple of weeks, uh, looking at 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. Um, after a brief review, thus far we've been looking at the church as the people of God. Specifically, the first week we saw the church as the people of God, as God's assembly. The church is called the church of the covenant assembly, as the covenant assembly of the people of God. They are the people that have been brought together by God Himself to worship in spirit and truth before the heavenly throne where Christ is seated. And then last week we saw the people of God as God's dwelling. The tabernacle we discussed was designed to be the means by which God would dwell in the midst of His people. Later the temple served the same purpose. But later still, because of Israel's persistent rebellion and idolatry, they were cast out of the land in judgment, and the glory of the Lord departed from the temple. And in a very vivid and tragic way, Ezekiel verses, or chapters 8-11 through 11, trace the causes and the manner of the glory of the Lord departing from the temple in Jerusalem. And that occasion um, highlights a very significant connection here, which I didn't unpack last week, which I wanted to make clear this week. Um, It was earlier in Israel's history when Eli was high priest and his rebellious sons Hophni and Phinehas served as priests at the altar of the tabernacle that a very tragic event occurred. The first four chapters of 1 Samuel tell the story But briefly, the scriptures depict Eli as a self-indulgent man and as an indulgent father, resulting in the rebellious sons who despised both his and God's authority. And on one occasion when Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons, went out to battle against the Philistines, they took the Ark of the Covenant with them. The Ark, of course, was to be in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, where God's presence would dwell. And when these rebellious men sought to conscript God's presence and power for their purposes in battle, the results were that the battle was lost, both Hophni and Phinehas were killed, and the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines. Now, who here can remember what happened Next in this story, does anybody recall? I do, uh, Go ahead, Forrest. What happened is they went back to tell uh, Eli, and he was sitting on a wall and he was fat. And when he told him, when they told him the bad news, he tumbled over backwards and broke his neck and died. Yes. And the interesting thing about all of this is when Samuel was presented to Eli. He grew up under Eli's teachings, and if you check later on, his sons did almost the same thing as Eli's sons, because of poor teaching. So it tells us a great deal about what he says, train up your children, the way they should go, and then they'll go on the apartment. Because if you don't train them up, they're going to end up the
Yeah, very good point. Very good point. And, and you're right. Um, that's what happens. Eli hears the tragic news. He falls over. He breaks his neck and dies. But then also, when the wife of Phineas, who was pregnant at the time, hears of the death of her husband and of her brother-in-law and of her father-in-law and the capture of the Ark of the Lord, she goes into labor and she gives birth to a son. And does anybody remember what she names him? Ichabod, which means no glory or the glory has departed. So as the presence of the glory of God had left the people of Israel due to the rebellion of the priests and their idolatrous worship and practices, in Ezekiel, similar features attend the departure of the glory of God from the temple four and a half centuries later. And it's in Ezekiel 8 where we see the prophet who is in exile in Babylon is carried in a vision to Jerusalem, to the temple, and God draws his attention to the rebellion and the idolatry that is taking, taking place there in the temple led by the rebellious priests. And so we have the depiction of these abominable acts that are taking place which provoke God's wrath, like what happened with Eli and his sons, but this time on a much greater scale. And then there's the judgment declared against unfaithful Israel, which comes in the form of a military defeat, like what happened in the earlier episode, only again on a much larger scale. And then we have the great tragedy of all, the departure of the glory of God from among his people as his glory departs from the temple. But here I want to highlight a significant difference between these two occasions. In the time of Eli and Samuel, the glory departed as the enemies of God's people captured the ark and carried away in, a, in captivity. In the time of Ezekiel, it was the people of God themselves who were to be carried off into captivity by their enemies. And while the glory of the Lord departed the temple by means of the magnificent chariots of the living creatures in the vision, God reveals for us the ultimate cause of His departure. And we can see that in Ezekiel 8, verse 6. If Joe, if you can read that for us. And He said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far from my sanctuary, you will see still greater abominations. Okay. So it was the great abominations of the people, people of Israel, God says, that drove him out of the temple. And it says, far from his sanctuary. It was these abominations that caused his house to be left desolate of his presence. So in the judgment of exile and God's departure, the temple was Ichabod. The glory had departed. But God's glory would come again and abide with His people in a new and better way as we discussed last week. In the incarnation, Christ has tabernacled among us in a much more intimate way than ever He could either in the tabernacle or in the temple. <clears throat> In the Word become flesh, we have seen His glory, John says. And elsewhere he says, we have seen and heard and touched Him who is the very radiance of the glory of God. 
And of course, as Paul explains, we as believers have been given the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in the Gospel. Now we talked last week about how in John 2, Christ, who is the glory of God, stood in the temple after he had cleansed it and driven out all those who were corrupting the worship there, and how he declared his authority to do so by pointing to his coming death and resurrection, in which at the time he declared his own body to be the true temple. What we didn't talk about is what happened when Christ, the glory of God, departed the temple in Jerusalem for the final time. And it's interesting that when you compare Ezekiel chapters 8 to 11 with Matthew 23, uh, 37 and following up to 24, 3, there are important similarities. Ezekiel depicts the glory of the Lord departing in the movement from between the cherubim in the Holy of Holies, moving to the threshold of the temple, and then continuing eastward through the court, and then leaving through the east gate, and thus the house was left desolate. In chapter 10, or I'm sorry, chapter 11, the presence of the glory of God departs the city and continues eastward and comes to rest on the mountain on the east side of the city, which overlooks the temple. And that mountain spoken of there is the Mount of Olives. And now in Matthew 23, after Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, he went to the temple and again cleansed it because of the corruption of the worship there. And then the day after he cleansed the temple, he stood in the temple courts and he taught the people in parables. And then he pronounced his seven woes upon the Jewish leaders. And then at the conclusion of his extensive pronouncements of judgment, both in parable and in prophetic woe, he uttered these very familiar words in Matthew 23, 37 to 39. Okay, thank you. So, as had been the case for centuries, the people of God, particularly the leaders, were obstacles to the kind, protective presence of Yahweh abiding with them. In spite of all His gracious provisions He had made, their rebellion would bring judgment. And Jesus had just finished pronouncing that judgment. Now, as in Ezekiel's day... The presence of the glory of the Lord, now in the personal presence of Christ, was about to depart the temple. So in verse 38 he declares, See, your house is left to you desolate. And what does he mean by this? What is this desolation? Well, verse 39 says, For you will not see me again. His departure is the desolation of the temple. And then he says, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So the final departure of Jesus from the temple was the departure of the glory of God from the temple. And as he left, Jesus prophesied 
the utter destruction of that stone temple, like the temple in Ezekiel was destroyed. And as the glory departed in Ezekiel's day and rested on the Mount of Olives, so Jesus departed and went eastward across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives, following the vision of Ezekiel. But as the glory departed in the person of Jesus, so he had promised that he would not leave his people, the true people, his faithful remnant, as orphans. And beginning with the remnant of his disciples, and beginning in Jerusalem, he came to them. And when the day of Pentecost had fully come, so came the glorious presence of the Holy Spirit to fill and abide with his people as his new covenant temple, which he would build together as living stones of people from every nation, tribe, and language as he would choose and call each of them out for his glory. And so this brings us to the subject for our study today, which is the people of God as God's chosen. And again, we'll start with 1 Peter 2, 9 to 10. Kathy? But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Thank you. Now this text has much to say about the status of the people of God. They are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own possession. But notice it also identifies them as God's chosen. That is, their election is asserted here very clearly. You are, he says, a chosen race. Chosen to be God's own possession. So we are chosen by God to be possessed by God. And now today we're going to look at the claim of God's choosing. And next week we'll talk about the vindication of God's choosing. So with regard to the claim of God's choosing, we'll see that God chooses his people for his mission. And this is clearly seen in the account of the calling of Abraham in Genesis 12, 1-3. Forrest? Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and, show, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make of you great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you. you. Very good. Thank you, Forrest. So God chose his people for his own mission. He called Abraham not only to bless Abraham, but to make Abraham a blessing. That in him all the nations, all the families of the earth might be blessed. And this is repeated in various forms in several other places in Genesis uh, Genesis 18, 18, 22, 18, and 26, 4. And as we'll see later, it is picked up and quoted in several key places in the New Testament, specifically Galatians 3, 8 and Acts 3:25. <clears throat> now, a quick note on this language used about the blessing of the nations. There are two ways in which the statement appears in the book of Genesis. One is in the passive form that the nations might be blessed, and the other is a reflexive form. 
that is, that the nations might bless themselves. That is, that in the name of the God of Abraham, they would invoke the blessings through the promise. So God called Abraham not only to bless him, but that God would bless the nations through Abraham. God chose Abraham not just with respect to his relationship to God, but with respect to his relationship to the nations of the world. God's purpose from the beginning went far beyond Abraham and far beyond Israel. It's far too small a thing for the king of the universe, for the savior of the world, to have a people from only one family on the earth. His ultimate purpose was to form one people from every family. Or in Christ, to form one family from every people. So God was just getting started with Abraham, who himself came out of a heritage of pagan idolatry, according to Joshua 24. And notice, so you think about in the book of Genesis, that the call of Abraham follows the table of nations in the story of the Tower of Babel. In, you'll find, and those are in chapters 10 and 11. So after the flood, the descendants of Noah increased greatly. And after the judgment of Babel, the peoples were scattered over the face of the earth. In chapters 10 and 11, these peoples are listed according to their genealogies, their clans, their nations and languages. And among the descendants of these scattered peoples was a man named Abram, the son of Terah. So immediately after delineating the distinct nations and peoples following the flood and Babel, Abraham is called out of these people, out of his clan, and he has promised descendants, promised a land, and promised that through him all the families of the earth would be blessed. How remarkable it is that Yahweh sets Abram apart from the rest of the families and nations so that Yahweh could bless the families and the nations through him and his seed. The blessing of the nations would come only through the choosing and the setting apart of Abraham and his descendants from those nations so that they could fill the mission to be a blessing to them. But this act of choosing was not unique in the, to the choosing of Abraham. Throughout Genesis and throughout the history of the patriarchs and the people of Israel, there is a continual emphasis on God's choosing. Abel is chosen over against Cain. Shem is chosen over against Japheth. In Genesis 12, 1-3, we see, as we saw, the choosing of Abraham from his own family. Genesis 21, 12, Isaac is chosen over against Ishmael. In Genesis 25, 23, Jacob is chosen over Esau. And in the last case, Paul makes very clear in Romans 9 the reason for God's choosing, simply that it might be seen and known that election is of God. But we learn in Scripture that God chooses not simply that he might possess those as his own, but that they might serve his mission, that he might use them for the glory of his name. So Abraham is called out to go to the place that God will show him. And of course, Abraham never comes to actually possess the land. He's a pilgrim and a sojourner in the land, but his descendants are promised to possess it. Thus, through the call of Abraham, Israel, by effect, is separated from the nations. And Israel is separated from the nations in several ways. 
They're separated geographically. They're set apart for God in the land that he promised for their dwelling and blessing. They're separated ceremonially. ceremonially. They're given an elaborate system whereby they are to be distinct ceremonially. They are to be a clean people. And the whole of the ceremonial law focuses on this issue of cleanness over against uncleanness. Diet and washings and hygiene all had severe restrictions and rules for observance. They're also separated ethically. God's people are to be obedient to God's law. They are to be a righteous people, a holy people in all of their conduct. And foundational to all of this, of course, is that they were to be separated religiously. They were to worship Yahweh alone, to love Him with all of their heart, soul, and mind. They were not to worship pagan idols or participate in any way or any form of idolatry. Deuteronomy 4, 7-8 tells of this distinctiveness of Israel in marvelous terms. And Deborah, if you can read that for us. Okay, thank you. And in verses 32 and 35, we see this wonderful conclusion showing the amazing goodness of God in the choosing of His people. Steve? For ask now of the days that are past, which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of fire, as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself in the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides Him. Okay, thanks, Steve. So you see in verse 25, God's purpose in His gracious choosing. To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God and there is no other besides Him. Then in Deuteronomy 28.10, this purpose is stated in terms of the nations. Jen? Okay. Now, many passages declare these truths about Israel's uniqueness, and it's worth noting that in all of these that we just read, uh, the necessity, the necessary condition of their obedience to the covenant is emphasized in the surrounding context. So, there to be this blessing if they hold to the covenant and fulfill what God has called them to. That is the means by which that blessing will come to the nations. So Israel is distinct in all these ways, but as we said, they were distinct and set apart for the purpose of the blessing of the nations, that God's glory would be known, and that he would be worshipped in all of the earth. Israel is called and set apart for the purpose of being a blessing to the nations, that all might hear the name of Yahweh, of his power and of his grace. 
that his fame would spread through the declaration of his mighty acts in the praises of his people. This is repeated over and over as the purpose of Israel's calling in general terms and also in particular circumstances throughout the Old Testament. And I want to consider some of the places where this purpose is made explicit. I want to note first that the judgment of Babel, which immediately precedes the account of the calling of Abraham, came specifically because the people were seeking to make a name for themselves, as opposed to declaring the greatness of the name of Yahweh. And then after that judgment, or I'm sorry, that, the fact of that is stated here in Genesis 11.4. Marilyn, if you can read that for us. Okay, so again, they, they were intent on making a name for themselves. But then again, in the calling of Abraham, God said that he would make his name great. But Abraham's name would only be great in his relation to God who blesses him so greatly, the God who is truly great. Abraham's blessings were for the nations that they might know the greatness of Yahweh. In Israel's history, the fact that their blessings were not for the sake of the blessings alone, but for the sake of others, as is very clear in these passages. Consider during the Exodus. Why was it that God sent the ten plagues? Exodus 7, 1 through 10 outlines that for us. Um, specifically here in verses 2 to 5, we see it. Go ahead, David. There it is. So the Egyptians, verse 5, will know that I am the Lord. The third plague found the magicians of Egypt confessing the superior power of Yahweh when they could not match it. And verse 18 tells us this, if you will, Eli. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. So the Okay, so again, verse 19, they confess, this is the finger of God. And then in announcing the seventh plague in Exodus 9, 13 to 17, we read this, Mike. Put out my hand 
Okay, thank you. So verse 14, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. In verse 15 to 16, he says, I could have struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But why didn't he? Because I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. In Exodus 12, 7 and following, we read of the institution of the Passover, then of the death of the firstborn of Egypt, and then in verse 33 we read of the people going out of Egypt with great abundance of wealth from the Egyptians. And verse 37 and 38 tell us this. Okay, verse 38, a mixed multitude, the word goyim, went up with them. These were non-Israelites who attached themselves to the people of Israel, having seen the mighty hand of God in their midst. Here the nations, the peoples, are being blessed through God's blessing of, of His people Israel. And in Joshua 4, after they crossed the Jordan... We're told the reason God miraculously brought them across both the Red Sea and the Jordan in verses 23 and 24. Okay, so that, you, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. And what was the effect of this? We read about that in Joshua 2, verses 8 to 14, where it tells the story of Rahab and her response to the things recorded. Okay, so Rahab says this, We have heard and our hearts melted, Yahweh is God in heavens above and on the earth beneath. The result of God's blessings on His people is that God's blessing comes to others as the report of God's greatness comes to them and as they believe and repent. And there are many more occasions that we could look at, but I want to mention just a few in the familiar story of David and Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, David goes out to battle and declares that the battle is Yahweh's and that victory will come to Israel because the Lord will fight. And verse 46 says that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. 
And then Psalm 67 sums up this theme beautifully for us. The entire psalm records this. Go ahead. Okay, so he says, bless us that your way may be known in all the earth, your saving power among the nations. Even in exile, when his people were in judgment, God showed his kindness to Daniel, one of the faithful remnants, by preserving him in the lion's den. And we see the effect that this had on the pagan king and on all his dominion. Thank you, Kareem. So we see the decree of Darius, In all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God. In 1 Kings 8, as the newly built temple was being dedicated, after the glory of the Lord had come and filled the temple, Solomon offered his dedicatory prayer. He asked God's blessing upon the people and upon the temple, in verse 30, he says, Listen to this, the plea of your servant and of your people when they pray toward this place, and listen in heaven, your dwelling place, and when you hear, forgive. And then down in verse 41 to 43, we read this. Okay, so verses 41 and following, Likewise, when the foreigner, those people who are not your people Israel, hears of your great name and comes and prays toward the temple, hear him and answer him, that all the peoples of the earth may know that know your name and fear you. The temple was to be a house of prayer for all nations, as our Lord himself said when he cleansed it in his wrath. Tragically, Solomon's own good intention soon turned to idolatry as he built above the temple on the, uh, on the Mount of Olives shrines for Chemosh and Molech, the gods of the Moabites and the Ammonites. And this was just the beginning then of the inexorable downfall of Israel which would lead to the destruction of Solomon's temple and exile from the land. So Israel is chosen and set apart 
for God's mission that the name and glory of Yahweh would be known among all the peoples of the earth, but they were cast out of the land, back among the nations, for their disobedience and idolatry. And though a remnant returned to the land, and even rebuilt the temple, the later glory, we're told, could not compare with the former glory, and the purpose of their calling, the fulfillment of the mission of being a light and blessing to the nations, would have to await the faithful Israelite, her true king, Emmanuel. He would build his church, his assembly, his temple and dwelling place. And as he said on his last day of teaching in the temple, in his denunciation of the rebellious generation that put him to death, the kingdom would be taken from them and given to a people who would produce its fruit. That is, the remnant of Israel, whom he had preserved for himself, and all the Gentiles who are called by his name. It is through this new covenant people that God would fulfill his mission to bring the knowledge of his glory to all the nations, that in the God of Abraham all the peoples of the earth would know the blessings of his salvation. The essence of this is making the glory of God known to all people everywhere. And this is precisely what Peter says our calling as a new covenant people of God is. We are chosen, we are set apart, we are made a people who belong to Yahweh, that we might declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Now we're all familiar with the passage in Matthew 28, 18-20, where Jesus gives his new covenant people their fundamental mission in the world. And... Mike, can you read that for us? Okay. Now, while this great commission is pregnant with new covenant meaning and implications, this is not a separate mission from what we've been discussing, but it's fulfillment of the mission of Abraham and Israel, which they were called to. The blessings promised to Abraham and through Abraham are the blessings of the gospel to all nations, as Galatians 3 verses 7 to 9 tell us. And Janica, can you read that for us? Okay, thank you. So what was the gospel preached to Abraham? The great promise of Genesis 12:3, "In you shall all the nations be blessed." It is the justification of the Gentiles by faith in the saving work of Israel's Messiah. It is this faith which brings all the promised blessings and which makes men and women, whatever their ethnicity, true sons and daughters of Abraham. And consider Acts 3:22 to 26. Amanda?
Okay, so the prophet spoken of by Moses has come in the person of Jesus Christ. And all those who don't listen to him, he says, are cut off from the people of God. Here Peter reminds them that Christ is the promised seed through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. And he warns these Israelites, these sons of the covenant, not to be cut off from this promised blessing, but to receive it through repentance and faith. Now Paul summarizes his own apostolic calling in Romans 1 verses 1 through 6 as this, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations. And Jen, can you, I'm sorry, Cecily, can you read that? Okay, thank you. So this is what was promised beforehand to the prophets in the Holy Scriptures with this end result of bringing about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among the nations, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Toward the end of Romans, in a series of Old Testament quotes, Paul summarizes Christ's own mission in a twofold fashion, centered on this great end that among all the peoples of the earth, God would have a people to praise, worship, extol, and hope in Him. Jen? Thank you. <clears throat> so Christ came, he says, to confirm the promise given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Christ has confirmed that promise. That aspect is fulfilled in his, and sealed in his death and resurrection. And then in the ongoing proclamation of the gospel to the people near and far, the rest of this is finding its fulfillment. The nations are hearing of the salvation of Yahweh and are joining in the praise of His great name. What the Old Covenant prophets declared is being carried out by God's people of the New Covenant. And then Paul, in his final words to the Romans in 16:25 to 27 in his doxology, this, he again focuses on this great mission of God to the nations. Rebecca? 
Okay, thank you. So as the New Covenant people of God, what had been hidden is now disclosed. What was secret has been made known to people of all nations, bringing about their faithful obedience to the Gospel and to the Gospel mission to declare His glory among the nations. Now if I might switch gears here for just a minute, I want to move away from speaking about the mission that God chooses His people to carry out, to compare the nature of Israel's being set apart to the New Covenant people being set apart. Besides being chosen for God's mission, in what ways are we set apart in our being God's chosen? Well, like Old Covenant Israel, we are set apart, but there are important covenantal differences. Israel was separated geographically. God's people are no longer geographically separate. God's place of worship is no longer a geographical place identifiable on a map. The time is coming and has now come, Jesus said, that the center of the worship of Yahweh would no longer be a geographical location on earth. No longer in Jerusalem, he said. But true worship of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would be in the spirit of Yahweh and in the truth that is in Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us in our midst. So no longer would a geopolitical state be necessary for the true worship of Yahweh to be realized and practiced as it had been in the Old Covenant system. Our Lord has established forever acceptable worship of God by faith in His once-for-all offering of Himself the perfect sacrifice which perfects all who come to him from every tribe and people and nation and in every tribe and people throughout the earth. We are separated ceremonially, but in a much different way. This elaborate ceremonial law from ritual washings to sacrificial offerings to annual feast days have all found their fulfillment in the one to whom they pointed the Lord Jesus Christ. The ceremonial distinctness of His new covenant people upon whom the end of the ages has come is found in two simple observances, two ordinances, both of which are distinctly for the covenant people of God and for no others. Baptism is for believers only who have been brought out of their bondage to sin and who have died to sin and are raised to live a new life in the Spirit. The other observance, the Lord's Supper, was instituted by our Lord during that Old Covenant Feast of Passover, which for the Exodus generation of Israelites was the means by which they were kept from judgment and led out of bondage and into the wilderness where they received the law, the instruction for the tabernacle and for the worship of Yahweh, and ultimately brought as a nation into the promised land where God would dwell with them in the temple. But now, our feast is Christ, our Passover, who was slain, and our observance is according to His instruction and with the simple elements of bread and wine. And again, this is an exclusive ceremony intended only for the distinct people of God, those who have their life in Him. And then in these last two, there is far more continuity than difference with the Old Covenant people. We are separated ethically. God's people 
are always to be distinct ethically. The moral law contained in the Ten Commandments and expounded in Christ's teaching is to mark us out as a holy people unto God. We don't follow the patterns of the evil world, but we follow the way of Christ in the midst of darkness and decay as we hold out the word of life. And then lastly, we are separated religiously. We worship Yahweh alone in His triune glory and will bow to, not, to no other. <clears throat> For we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then that will conclude what we're discussing today. Next week we'll look at the vindication of God's choosing. And I'll take one or two questions if anybody has anything pressing. Otherwise we are out of time. Okay, good. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we are in awe of Your faithfulness to Your purpose and to Your people. Lord, that You will carry out Your mission of seeing Your name declared throughout the earth and drawing Your people from every nation, every tribe, from every language, that together we can join with all the angels and all the saints in declaring your praises. Lord, we pray that you would help us to be faithful to that calling, that you would work powerfully through us to fulfill it, and that you remind us continually of the grace by which we have been given such tremendous blessing. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.